I hate war as only a soldier who has lived it can, only as one who has seen its brutality, its futility, its stupidity. Dwight D. Eisenhower. Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour. The Radio Hour is a project of Veterans for Peace Chapter 168, Louisville, Kentucky, broadcast on Forward Radio, WFMP-LP, Louisville 106.5 FM. This program is also available on the Forward Radio website in streaming and podcast form at forwardradio.org. That's all lowercase and no spaces. Veterans for Peace is an international organization dedicated to building a culture of peace. We are military veterans, family members, and allies. We accept veteran members from all branches and all eras of service. Veterans for Peace has been exposing the true costs of war since 1985. As veterans, we work to heal the world and ourselves through our commitment to peace. That may seem like a tall order, maybe impossible, even ludicrous. But we must keep in mind that every journey begins with the first step. Please join us on our journey. Dateline Moscow, February 24, 2022, New York Times reporting. Russia invades Ukraine. President Vladimir V. Putin of Russia declared the start of a special military operation in Ukraine on Thursday. After months of speculation about Russia's intentions as it massed tens of thousands of troops on Ukraine's border, addressing his nation in a televised speech broadcast just before 6 a.m. Thursday, Mr. Putin said his goal was to quote, demilitarize, unquote, but not occupy the country. A little later in the same speech, Putin indicated another, significantly more absurd goal, to denazify Ukraine. Hello, my name is Stephen Gardner, and you're listening to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour on Forward Radio WFMP Low Power, Louisville 106.5 FM. Forward Radio is a grassroots, listener-sponsored, all-volunteer community radio station operated as an independent nonprofit in pursuit of social, economic, and environmental justice. Forward is 100% listener-supported. That means we don't have advertisers or corporate sponsors. We depend on the volunteer labor of our dedicated programmers and financial support from our listeners. We are headed into our annual pledge drive and want to encourage anyone within the sound of my voice to make a donation, large or small, as you can afford. You can do that by going to our website, forwardradio.org, all one word, all lowercase, and clicking on the donate button. I'll tell you more about the pledge drive and some very special events you won't want to miss later in the show. For now, welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour. Once again, my name is Stephen Gardner and I'll be your host for today's show. Russia, Ukraine, and the United States. Empire, militarization, and consequences. Part 1. How did we get here? Section 1. Against the Nazis. 
On 24 February 2022, Russian forces invaded Ukraine, marking the start of the largest land war in Europe since 1945. No one yet knows how this will end, but it is worth reviewing how we got here, including review of some history that is too often presumed rather than explained. And that means that it's too often forgotten. At least in Europe, the Second World War ended on 8 May 1945. It was the single bloodiest conflict in world history. Total casualties remain uncertain, but overall deaths are estimated to have been between 70 and 85 million lives lost. This is how the sides were drawn. On one side were the Allied powers, Great Britain, the United States, and France, the so-called Western powers, fighting alongside the Soviet Union and China. On the other side, they were fighting against the Axis powers, Germany, Italy, and Japan. This is worth remembering. The U.S. and the Soviet Union, as well as China, were allies against fascism and Nazism in World War II. And during World War II, both Russia and Ukraine were part of the Soviet Union, and both suffered massively disproportionate casualties. The Soviet Union as a whole, with a total population of 200 million at the beginning of World War II, lost a minimum 20 million lives. About 14 million of those were from what today is Russia. Another 6.8 million were from Ukraine. To put this into perspective, the United States, with a population of 133.5 million at the time, suffered 419,000 deaths as a result of the war. So as a percent of the population, U.S. war deaths were about 0.3%, while Soviet losses were at least 10% of the population, or about 67 times greater. Put another way, in the U.S., about 1 in 300 people died in the war. In the Soviet Union, it was about 1 in 10. The U.S. has never in its history fought a war in which we suffered casualties on this order of magnitude. The nearest approximation is the Civil War, which saw 620,000 dead, counting casualties on both sides. The population at the time was about 31 million. That amounts to about 2%, or 2 in 100. That is a horrifying level of violence, and still only one-fifth of the level of deaths the Soviet Union suffered in World War II. All of this is to say that the Soviet Union in general, and both Russia and Ukraine in particular, bore the brunt of fighting against the fascist powers in Europe and suffered widely disproportionate casualties as compared to the Western allies. Sit with that for a minute. How do you think the average Soviet must have felt about the disproportionate suffering they endured as a result of the war? How do you think the Soviet Union told that history? What uses did they put to it? Even with the end of the Soviet Union, that history hasn't disappeared. The shadow of the Second World War is long in Russia, and Putin's claim to be invading Ukraine in order to denazify it has far more to do with a propagandistic appeal to the memory at home, the memory of all those bodies, than the real 
but tiny neo-Nazi movement in Ukraine. None of which, of course, has anything, does anything, to justify the reckless invasion of Ukraine in 2022, the march toward authoritarianism in Russia under Putin, nor, for that matter, the brutality of the Soviet Union under Stalin. If we are to meet the challenges of the messy, complicated, and all-too-human world we live in, we have no choice but to face both history and the present moment in all its messiness and complexity. I'll have more to say about the Ukrainian neo-Nazi movement and the complicity of the U.S. and involvement of U.S. citizens in that movement, as well as Russian equivalents later on in the show. But first, after a short musical break and a chance to tell you more about the pledge drive here at Forward Radio, I'm going to talk about the second major precursor to the current crisis, the Cold War and its legacy. Once again, I'm Stephen Gardner, and you are listening to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour. The Radio Hour airs monthly on Ford Radio, WFMP LP, Louisville, 106.5 FM, an all-volunteer community radio station that depends on the support of its listeners. The station went on the air on April 9, 2017, and we are marking the occasion of our fifth anniversary with a pledge drive from March 27th through April 9th. We need to raise $5,000, and you can pick up some fabulous one-of-a-kind thank you gifts when you donate at forwardradio.org. Just go to forwardradio.org, all lowercase, all one word, sometime during the drive. And... I want to invite each and every one of you to join us to celebrate on Saturday, April 9th from 1 to 4 p.m. at Tim Faulkner Gallery for an anniversary party with food, drinks, live music, and speakers. I promise the speeches won't go on too long. You won't want to miss it. I'll see you there. What you just heard was the song 99 Red Balloons from 1984 by the German band Nina. The German language version, Neun und Neunzig Luftballons, was popular in Germany on the radio in the early 1980s when I was stationed at a nuclear missile unit in the small German town of Schwäbisch Gmünd. That was back during the first Reagan administration. The Cold War was getting hot. The moment we are living through now brings me back to that time. It was a time when war seemed both inevitable and at the same time impossible. And so what did we do? We listened to upbeat songs about the end of the world. At the end of World War II, the United States emerged as the dominant world power, the only major power to emerge from the war stronger and richer than at its start. The U.S. used its military strength, underwritten by its possession of nuclear weapons and the demonstrated willingness to use them, to force a new Cold War. New institutions were built, the United Nations, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund. And then, as the Soviet Union grew in military and geopolitical power, acting as a kind of counterweight to the United States, 
a new kind of war emerged. Fought by proxy and propaganda and constrained by the doctrine of mutually assured destruction, the Cold War. Fought and not fought under the threat of nuclear oblivion, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, formed in 1949 was a so-called collective security structure meant to protect Western Europe from the Soviet Union by pledging that an attack on any member of the alliance would be treated as an attack on all, and particularly as an attack on the United States with its ever-growing nuclear arsenal. The Cold War lasted from 1947 to 1991, when the Soviet Union collapsed. There was talk at the time of the collapse of a potential peace dividend of the reallocation of public funds previously spent on munitions and for the United States, a globe-spanning network of military bases, things like, you know, education and infrastructure. This, as everyone knows, never happened. NATO, the quintessential Cold War institution, instead of being disbanded at when, the Cold, when the Soviet Union collapsed, was expanded to include many of the Eastern European countries that had been part of the Soviet-aligned Warsaw Pact. And at that time, it was also repurposed. It was an organization in search of missions from the war on terror to the war on drugs. And it's only now uh, in the second decade of the 21st century that uh, it's once again realigning itself towards, uh, towards Russia. So it was just over 30 years ago, in December 1991, when Ukraine became an independent country. The Soviet Union was coming apart, there was a vote, the people voted overwhelmingly for independence, not that they uh, thought that the Russian Federation would like that very much, and even though they had a large population of ethnic Russians within the country. Russia, of course, considered the successor state to the Soviet Union, at least for global geopolitical purposes for example, inheriting the permanent seat on the UN Security Council. So Russia not happy with an independent Ukraine. But then in the 1994 Budapest Memorandum, Ukraine agreed to turn over all of its nuclear weapons to Russia, the United States, the UK, and Russia agreed to respect Ukrainian sovereignty and territorial integrity, the idea being, of course, that uh, the United States would stand as guarantor of the, the security of Ukraine once it gave up its nuclear weapons, which happened. Ukraine became a nuclear-free power, and uh, Russia uh, maintained uh, control of those weapons, which at the time was thought to be of critical importance to avoid further proliferation. You've been listening to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour here on Ford Radio WFMP LP, Louisville 106.5 FM. I'm Stephen Gardner, your host for today, and I wanted to remind you that Pledge Week is coming up. That's going to be March 27th through April 9th, and this is our fifth anniversary here at Ford Radio. We're trying to raise $5,000, which is a tiny amount of money, but this is an all-volunteer community radio station, and 
we need to pay our our rent and some basic fees and that's it we operate on a very tight budget we need your help to make it so please go to the Ford Radio website that's fordradio.org all one word all lowercase and click that donate button and make a donation and if you make it sometime during the 27th of March and the 9th of April you might uh, just get yourself a pretty cool uh, uh, gift from the uh, from the station also I'd like to invite you to come out on Saturday April 9th from 1 to 4 p.m. to the Tim Faulkner Gallery for our anniversary party there's gonna be food drinks there's gonna be music there'll be a few speakers don't worry not too bad uh, and I'm gonna be there and uh, I hope all of you will too That, of course, was the Motown classic War by Edwin Starr. And we're now all the way down to section three of the timeline, the countdown to how we got here. NATO expansion and Russian anxiety. First off, I want to say there's a narrative floating around out there many spaces on the left that goes something like this. NATO was aggressively expanding into Eastern Europe, getting closer and closer to Russia's borders ever since the end of the Cold War, in spite of promises, in spite of uh, agreements that there would be no such expansion, it kept expanding. And yet, that narrative, which leans on the notion that President Putin of Russia had no choice but to invade Ukraine in order to defend himself from NATO aggression is far, far too simplistic. There is no justification for the brutal invasion of a country. The fact that as anti-imperialists, as veterans for peace, as leftists, we want to be able to criticize a dominant power like the United States. Doesn't mean that we can't also criticize Russia. The two do not have to be separated. The two go together. Russia is another great power. It is not currently as powerful as the United States, but that doesn't make it into uh, a, a sympathetic character in some kind of morality play any more than uh, the notion of American exceptionalism should make the United States into a uh, um, privileged character. We have to look at these issues dry-eyed. We have to look at them from a position of our values, but our values as they align with the facts of the world. Otherwise, we're making noise and nothing else. That said, NATO did, as a matter of fact, expand in the latter part of the 20th century and into the 21st. In 1999, it was the Czech Republic, it was Hungary, it was Poland. They all joined NATO. Then along comes the idea of potentially finding a path for Ukraine, which is right on the border of Russia, which had been deeply connected to Russia 
which is contrary to Vladimir Putin's um, comments now and again, that it's not a country. It is a country. It thinks of itself as a country. However, it's a country. It's a nation state with a large ethnic Russian minority. This creates the kinds of needs for coexistence and diplomacy and democracy that we find in any country where there's a significant minority that also happens to have uh, um, co-ethnics uh, who are the absolute majority in a powerful nearby country, in this case Russia. This creates power dynamics. So in 2004, Ukraine, there is the so-called Orange Revolution. We also see the beginnings of the, the rise of right-wing forces in Ukraine that will continue to plague efforts to move towards democracy because every time there is in Ukraine a movement towards, uh, towards democracy, you have not only uh, Russian-aligned politicians who might want to pull Ukraine in the direction of, of Russia, you also have right-wing opportunists who will take advantage of any pro-democracy demonstration or protest or movement to advance their agenda, which has to do either with ultranationalism in some cases uh, that would not be helpful for uh, maintaining a multi-ethnic state like Ukraine must be if it's going to be a democratic state. Or, uh, in extreme cases, they don't really care about uh, Ukraine at all. They care about fascism and wanting to build, uh, create as much chaos as possible in both Ukraine and Russia, and especially in Europe and in the so-called Western democracies, uh, in order to spread fascism throughout Europe. So, in the Orange Revolution, you see the beginnings of this rise of the right in Ukraine, um, you see a Russian-aligned candidate, uh, Viktor Yanukovych, uh, Yanukovych, who is um, uh, elected president of Ukraine. However, the elections are widely seen in the international community as being fraudulent. This is a credible claim. The doubtful victory is followed pretty quickly by a popular uprising, uh, people out on the streets, and this forces a new election. This happens fairly quickly, and in the follow-up election, Yanukovych loses. He loses to a Western-aligned candidate, and from this point on, we're going to see a seesaw back and forth between Russian-aligned and European-aligned uh, politicians vying for control of Ukraine. So 2010, Viktor Yanukovych makes a comeback. He runs for president and he's elected. International monitors say this time it's free and fair. Once in power, he pivots strongly towards Russia however, is still making overtures to the EU. Um, he has having to walk a tightrope. He depends on Russia for cheap gas. He is looking to try to make a deal with uh, the EU, 
who are offering him potentially a path towards membership in the EU and lots of Ukrainians are interested in that. The EU tries to set him up or rather the, the Western uh, community tries to set him up with a IMF loan, an international monetary mo loan with the same kinds of strings attached that it typically offers, which uh, demand um, austerity programs that are quite likely to uh, break the popularity of any politician and break the spirit of most people since these are uh, uh, absurd terms that uh, are often called for. Russia makes a counteroffer. He says, uh, we'll give you a no strings attached loan of the same amount as the IMF was uh, going to offer you. Um, you'll just have to go along with a few things uh, that, uh, that we might want from you. Well, uh, eventually this leads to some uh, wide-scale protests culminating in 2014 with uh, the so-called Euromaiden protests or the Maiden Square riots. About 130 people are killed, um, but uh, uh, who exactly is responsible for the majority of the deaths is unclear. Uh, the protesters are a mix of far-right agitators how many, again, unclear, but plenty of ordinary citizens um, aligned towards democracy, certainly favoring EU membership, favoring a pivot towards Europe and away from Russia. Uh, but uh, um, uh, lots of people are armed. Uh, there are snipers. Uh, the snipers likely belong to far-right paramilitaries. Their purpose seems to be to overthrow the existing government opportunistically with these uh, Democrats, um, uh, these democracy agitators, uh, in an effort to create chaos and uh, get what they can. Following the 2014 violence at Maiden Square, Russia invaded and occupied the Crimean Peninsula. This is Ukrainian territory, but ethnic Russians are a majority. Their justification? Violent repression of ethnic Russians, condoned or at least ignored by the government. In effect, Russia claimed those of Russian ethnicity in Ukraine were being targeted by a campaign that amounted to ethnic cleansing. This is of crucial importance in understanding the moment we now find ourselves in. Putin reprises these atrocity claims to justify the 2022 invasion. One question that seems worth answering, if we can, what is the truth? According to the fact-checking site PolitiFact, Putin's 2022 claims of genocidal ethnic violence in the breakaway Russian ethnic-majority regions of Donetsk and Lugansk are at the very least exaggerated. Political violence in and around these regions has decreased precipitously since 2018, all the way to about 8.5 deaths per 100,000 population in 2021. This is roughly equivalent to the homicide rate of a safe U.S. city, and any rate in the single digits is considered rock bottom in statistical terms. The reported deaths, by the way, are from the Organization for Cooperation and Security in Europe, a 57-nation group that includes Russia, that has been conducting 
casualty monitoring in the region. While it is certainly possible that some deaths from political violence could have been uncounted, it is not plausible that large numbers of casualties could have been missed. Hence, Russian claims lack credibility, at least through the beginning of the invasion. The story, however, doesn't stop there. If we look back to 2014, at the time of Russia's first post-Cold War military intervention in Ukraine, the number of deaths from political violence was 2014. That's about 55 per 100,000 population in the breakaway regions. This is a significant level of violence, roughly equivalent to the homicide rate in one of the more quote-unquote dangerous U.S. cities, for example, Baltimore in 2019. And depending on the character of the violence, its brutality and the way it is targeted, it could surely terrorize a minority population. Moreover, the association, or at least the accusation of the involvement of far-right paramilitaries, such as the Azov Brigade, which has neo-Nazi connections and has been an international magnet for white nationalists and fascists to seek military training, must give us pause. Again, two or more things can be true. Russian propaganda and disinformation can be shaking the information sphere surrounding the Ukraine invasion. And there can be well-justified fears of murderous political violence among ethnic Russians. This fear may have been intentionally exaggerated by Ukrainian fascists, whose intention was to provoke a Russian intervention in order to generate chaos and political options for themselves if not as the new leaders of a sovereign nation-state, then as warlords engaged in an insurgency. I, like everyone else, of course, cannot know at this point that far-right Ukrainian paramilitaries intentionally drew Russia into an invasion. It's a plausible story and points to the fact that the purpose of asymmetrical provocateurs in attempting to draw state actors, Russia, the United States, etc., into brutally local insurgencies and civil wars is typically irrelevant to those state actors. The great powers in particular have their own reasons for intervention, which reference provocative acts mostly as convenient justifications, which they are more than happy to change mid-course if the original threat, say, weapons of mass destruction, which may never have been particularly plausible in the first place, evaporate. I recount this story of how we got here because this is the fraught and volatile situation into which Volodymyr Zelensky was elected as president of Ukraine. In the next part of today's show, I'll explore the ways in which Zelensky in particular and Ukraine in general, have been lionized in the mainstream media discourse in the U.S., as well as demonized by elements of the far right. And I'll try to answer some questions about where this leaves us in our attempts to grapple with the truth and formulate policy in the face of war. But first, it's time for another station break, followed by a musical interlude.
Hello, listeners. This is Stephen Gardner from the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour, and this is Forward Radio, Louisville's listener-supported community radio station. Forward Radio has been on the air for five years, and we need your help. Love our programming? It's now the time to go to our website, forwardradio.org, and hit that donate button. You might even get a -a one-of-a-kind gift. And hey, while you're at it, join us in celebrating five years on the air on Saturday, April 9th, 1 to 4, at Tim Faulkner Gallery. There'll be food, drink, and fun for all. Hey, welcome back. That was Rich Man's War by John Trudell from his 1992 album, a.k.a. Graffiti Man. Part 2. Where are we? The news is unrelenting. It never stops. March 19, 2022. Russia hits western Ukraine. Biden issues warning to Xi. Former New Presidents Times. Bush and Clinton leave flowers to Ukrainian villages. Russia shells civilian targets. Bombs on school steps up diplomatic efforts. President Zelensky remains defined in the face of Putin's late, latest violence in Ukraine. Forever for 17 March 2022. News. Biden on Putin. Russia's military I think is, he is a war criminal. That CNN. Makes it more dangerous. 15 March Washington 2022. Post. Inside Russia's war of annihilation on Ukraine sports cities. ABC News. Those are the kinds of headlines we're bombarded with every day. They overwhelm our capacity to sort propaganda from fact and think through how one shades into the other. Yeah, but even so, a generic skepticism that stops attempting to sort truth from lies or takes the word of one imperial power over another simply because of its position in the global system, Russia over U.S. or U.S. over Russia, ceases to be skepticism or critical thinking and becomes cynicism, leaning into nihilism. That is the language of those aligned with former President Donald Trump. It is not the language of conservatism, which has, in the third decade of the 21st century, all but ceased to exist, but of the populist authoritarianism of the Make America Great Again or MAGA movement. Let's hear some examples. This is from Representative Madison Cawthorn, the rookie congressman from North Carolina. Quote, remember that Zelensky is a thug. Remember that the Ukrainian government is incredibly corrupt and it is incredibly evil and it has been pushing woke ideologies. Next up, we have Fox News personality Tucker Carlson. On 22 February 2022, Carlson said, quote, Has Putin ever called me a racist? Has he threatened to get me fired for disagreeing with him? Has he shipped every middle-class job in my town to Russia? Did he manufacture a worldwide pandemic that wrecked my business and kept me indoors for two years? Is he teaching my children to embrace racial discrimination? Is he making fentanyl? Is he trying to snuff out Christianity? Does he eat dogs? As is so often the case, Carlton, Carlson needs little explanation. He's a right-wing pro- provocateur intent on saying, in the most condescending way he can manage, anything that he thinks will annoy American progressives. 
His sarcastic response to U.S. media characterizations of Russia turns into a laundry list of far-right peeves. The U.S., he seems to be saying, is facing off against the wrong enemy. It's not Russia, but China and American liberals that we should be fighting. Finally, I want to read you a March 17, 2022 tweet from Magdalene commentator Candace Owens. This is what she put out to her 3 million followers. President Zelensky is a very bad character who is working with globalists against the interests of his own people. I will not move one inch away from that assessment, ever, no matter how flowery the media depictions of him are. Now, the part of that comment that really should be astonishing, but at this juncture no longer has the power to astonish, is not, that the, is not the anti-Zelensky slur casting him, casting him as, quote, working with globalists against the interests of his own people. That's no more than the MAGA line, attempting to out-Trump Trump provocation. No, it's the declaration that she will not move one inch from her position, no matter how flowery the media depictions. Owens makes the binary opposition, her assessment, that is, her opinion, versus flowery media depictions into the entire universe of possible judgments. In this binary, as in the Trumpian playbook, there's no room for evidence, for course correction, for the possibility of getting things wrong, or some right and some wrong, for experience and change, for independent assessments. It's all hand-waving and deductions from the first principle that whatever annoys the libs, the left, the elites, etc., is always justified. Evidence or plausibility be damned. So with so much misinformation, so much propaganda, so much media cheerleading and demonizing, depending on your political persuasion, how do we think about the war in Ukraine? How do we think about how we as American citizens should be responding to it? I'll take a very brief break for station identification, and then I'll come back and share some thoughts from the Veterans for Peace National Office. You have been listening to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour on Forward Radio, WFMP LP, Louisville, 106.5 FM. I'm Stephen Gardner, a veteran for peace, and I want to share with you the Veterans for Peace National Office Statement Encouraging Diplomacy, Not War. Veterans for Peace condemns the invasion of Ukraine. Our mission remains the same. We are committed to a sustainable and just peace. As veterans, we know increased violence only fuels extremism. We have watched, and in some cases, been firsthand witnesses to how the people of Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Libya, Yemen, etc., have had their countries and lives destroyed by U.S. and Russian military involvement. The only sane course of action now is a commitment to genuine diplomacy with serious negotiations, without which conflict could easily spiral out of control to the point of further pushing the world toward nuclear war.
genuine diplomacy is a commitment to compromise and maintaining open lines of communication. We reject punitive sanctions that harshen the lives of people across the region. The majority of sanctions that Biden, the majority of sanctions that Biden is proposing are not tools of diplomacy, nor are they nonviolent methods of foreign policy. They do not target those responsible for war, but affect vulnerable citizen populations by limiting access to basic necessities. The U.S. has a responsibility to pursue genuine diplomacy, to push for an immediate ceasefire and withdrawal, and to apply pressure on other nations to do the same. Veterans for Peace recognizes that this current crisis did not happen in the last few days, but represents decades of policy decisions and government actions that have only contributed to the building of antagonisms and aggressions between countries. We must respond to this current crisis and continue to address the causes of war by redirecting the military budget towards human needs, pushing for the global abolition of weapons, of nuclear weapons, and eliminating the ability of corporations to profit from war. Well, radio friends, we're nearing the end of today's show. I wanted to take one last chance to encourage you to donate to Forward Radio. Go to our website, go to forwardradio.org, all one word, and press that donate button. You won't regret it. You can do this between March 27 to April 9, and you'll get a free one-of-a-kind gift, and you can do it any time of the year that you feel like supporting public radio, real public radio, real community radio, by the people, for the people, and of the people. And please come out and join us at Tim Faulkner Gallery on April 9th from 1 to 4 p.m. for our fifth anniversary celebration. There's going to be food, there's going to be drinks, it's going to be fun. I hope to see you there. You have been listening to Veterans for Peace Radio Hour here on Forward Radio, WFMP LP, 106.5 FM, Louisville, Kentucky. We have enjoyed our time with you today and look forward to having you back sometime soon. Please join us on the path to peace and nonviolence. We can imagine a world without war, and no matter what the journey is, it will always begin with the first step. For more information, please go to veteransforpeace168.org or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening.